Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Wellington, Ohio is a quaint village around 40 miles southwest of Cleveland, Ohio. It's surrounded by rolling fields. In 2007, it was the scene of a grisly crime that would cause irreversible damage to a well-known and well-loved family and, in its aftermath, would reignite the debate over teenagers and violent video games. It was on the evening of Friday, the 20th of October, 2007, when local police were called to a modest three-bedroom ranch-style home. This was the home of the Petrick family, which consisted of 45-year-old Mark, 43-year-old Susan, and their children, 21-year-old Heidi, 17-year-old Holly, and 16-year-old Daniel. Before moving to Wellington, the Petricks were youth and associate pastors at Eastgate Assembly of God a church located near Columbus. They had worked as house parents for troubled teens at the Choice Place Boys' Home in Ashland. Then, in 2003, the family moved into a home on seven acres of land in Wellington. Here, Mark took up the role as pastor of the New Life Assembly of God. As Hal Stiles, a member of the church, said, Mark and his family were easy to love. They were just like the rest of us. Susan was described as the perfect pastor's wife. She was known for always wanting to help people, but friends all said she also had a mischievous side. Kathy Stiles, a member of the church, recalled how on one occasion, Susan brought along a whoopee cushion to a ladies' auxiliary meeting, which led to lots of laughter among women in the audience. Susan also worked at a Wellington-area nursing home as a bookkeeper. Those who knew her best said that she was a sensitive woman with a deep compassion for children and often filled in for the Sunday school class. The youngest child of the family, Daniel, had been homeschooled in Columbus, but when the family moved over to Wellington, he was enrolled at Wellington High School, where he was a sophomore. Educationally, he was in the middle of his class, 
earning a 2.7 grade point average. Daniel enjoyed skateboarding, playing the drums, and playing his Xbox. His friends said that he was always upbeat and loved to clown around, a lot like his mother. Religion was important to the Petrick family, and Sundays were for church. Daniel even competed with other churches on a Bible challenge team on their knowledge of the Bible. His coach, Stephanie Maybaugh, said that he was intelligent and friendly. He was also reported to be the best player on the church's Bible quiz team and could quote verbatim long verses from the Bible. His sister, Heidi, she also served as a youth pastor with her husband, Andrew, at New Life Assembly of God, while other sister, Holly, was a senior at Wellington High School. At around 7 p.m. on the 20th of October, 2007, Heidi and her husband Andrew arrived at the family home. They had been invited over to watch the Cleveland Indians play the Boston Red Sox in the American League Championship Series. As they approached the door of the home, Daniel appeared. He looked frantic and tried to prevent his sister and her husband from entering the home. Suspicions were immediately aroused, and Heidi and Andrew managed to barge their way into the house. Inside, it took them just a couple of seconds to take in the carnage before them. In the living room, they found Mark and Susan on perpendicular couches. Susan had been shot in the back of the head and through both forearms, while Mark had been shot once in the face. They rushed to Susan and found that she had no pulse. They next checked Mark and found that he was still alive. It was evident that the wounds were extremely recent and a 9mm weapon was found at the scene. Andrew administered first aid while Heidi called 911. As Heidi was on the phone with the 911 operator, Daniel placed a phone call to Andrew's brother, Stephen Archer, who lived in nearby Medina County. Daniel and Andrew were friends. Neither Heidi nor Andrew heard the conversation, but after Daniel hung up the phone, he fled the home in the family's minivan. Daniel was headed to Stephen's place. Police were made aware of the situation and of Daniel's peculiar behavior at the front door. Within 10 minutes of leaving, he was pulled over by Wellington police and arrested. As handcuffs were slapped on his wrists, he stated that his father shot his mother and then shot himself. Tragically, nothing could be done to save Susan and she was pronounced dead at the scene, but Mark was still clinging to life. He was rushed to the Metro Health Medical Center in Cleveland where he was said to be in critical condition, but in and out of consciousness. He had a bullet lodged in his lower jaw. Captain Rich Resendez of the Lorain County Sheriff's Office said that the first aid Andrew had administered to Mark at the family home most definitely saved his life. On Sunday, more than 75 members of New Life Assembly of God appeared in church for the weekly service and to comfort each other in the wake of such a tragedy. Typically, Mark would have run this service, but Joel Souza, a former pastor, stepped in. Turning to the congregation, he said, We're not here to answer the two questions we all want answered. What happened and why? Let's not even try to answer those questions, because we can't until more information comes out. 
By Monday, investigators would announce that the main suspect in the murder was 16-year-old Daniel. While being questioned, Daniel stuck to the story that his father murdered his mother and then shot himself. However, Daniel did not anticipate his father surviving the shooting, and before being rushed to hospital, he told his daughter Heidi that it was Daniel who shot them both. At a press conference, Captain Resendez said, We believe that Daniel is the sole person responsible for this tragedy. He has given us some details about what occurred and indicated some of his reasoning, but we are not discussing any motive at this time. He revealed that Daniel confessed to shooting his parents and had offered some kind of explanation as to why, but said they would not be releasing that information just yet. When speaking with investigators, Daniel was said to be calm. He expressed sorrow but otherwise showed almost no semblance of emotion. Captain Resendez said that he had been cooperative, and it appeared as though he was trying to tie up some loose ends, at least in his own mind. He also asked the investigators to pass on his concern to his family. He stated, quote, He indicated he was ready to accept his responsibility, but we're dealing with a 16-year-old, and I'm not sure he understands. It would be revealed that Mark's own 9mm handgun had been used in the shooting and left at the crime scene, and investigators believe that the two wounds to Susan's forearms were defensive wounds and had been caused before she was finally shot in the head. On that same day, Daniel appeared before a juvenile magistrate to be charged with murder and attempted murder. His defense attorney, Jim Kersey, requested that Daniel be released into the custody of his grandfather, Michael Brockle, and Michael said to Judge David Berta that Daniel had already been forgiven by his parents and by God, stating, Daniel has been a loving child all of his life. He has never given anyone any trouble. If his mother and father were sitting here, they would forgive him too. Judge Berta turned down the request and ordered that Daniel remain at the Lorraine County Detention Home. The next day, Daniel appeared in court again, this time to hear the formal charges, which included murder and felonious assault. Magistrate Stephen Blake announced that it was mandatory that Daniel's case be sent to common pleas court, which meant that he would be tried as an adult, not a juvenile. Attorney John Otero was appointed the legal guardian of Daniel, which meant that he could represent Daniel in the capacity of what a parent or legal guardian would normally do. It was expected that he would serve this role until the case was sent to common pleas court. News of Daniel's arrest swept through the area like a tidal wave, and many were left wondering if there were signs that had somehow been missed. Daniel had never exhibited violence around his friends or in school, with Superintendent Victor Cardenzana saying, There is nothing that would profile him as a source of violence. One classmate, Valerie Villanueva, said that when Daniel got mad in school, he would just keep to himself. He wouldn't lash out at anyone. However, according to Captain Resendez, there were conflicting stories regarding Daniel and investigators would need to look into whether there were warning signs of violence or whether Daniel truly was a decent teenager who got into serious trouble for the first time in his life. On the 25th of October, Judge Berta granted Daniel a 30-minute furlough so that he could say goodbye to his mother, the woman he shot and killed, at a church viewing. 
His defense team had originally requested permission for Daniel to attend Susan's funeral, but the judge refused and instead granted him permission to view her body in the church briefly. He was allowed a supervised visit by a court employee and sheriff's deputies, and no family members were allowed to be present. When granting the furlough, Judge Berta said that he needed to think about the long-term psychological effects, adding that Daniel would have to live with what he had done for the rest of his life. Prosecutor Tom Sillo had asked the judge to deny his request, stating that it was distasteful because Mark, who still remained in hospital, would not have the same opportunity to bid farewell. At around 1 p.m., Daniel was driven by a jail van to the New Life Assembly of God. The following day, Susan's funeral was held at the Avon Christian Heritage Center on Chester Road. About 500 loved ones of the Petrick family attended the service. Reverend Stephen Conrad of Eastgate Assembly of God Church said, We are gathering not to answer unanswerable questions. We're here to celebrate the life of our sister. During the service, Susan was remembered as a serious football fan with a mischievous giggle. While Daniel's name was mentioned several times throughout the service, there was no mention of what he had been accused of doing. Afterward, Susan was buried at Greenwood Cemetery. The following week, Judge Berta ruled that Daniel would be tried as an adult and set his bond at $1 million. According to Daniel's attorney, James Kersey, Daniel would have pleaded guilty to the murder if the case remained in juvenile court. This meant he would have been released when he turned 21. However, now he was facing life in prison if he were convicted. Outside of court, attorney Kersey said he had offered the plea simply because a guilty conviction in juvenile court would be substantially lower than a conviction in criminal court. Following the hearing, Daniel was moved from the juvenile detention home to the county jail, where he was to be segregated from the adult inmates. Mark would finally be discharged from hospital in November. His jaw had been broken by the gunshot wound and remained swollen on one side while he had a large gash on the side of his scalp from where doctors had opened his skull to relieve bleeding on the brain. Thankfully, he suffered no brain damage. Speaking with the Chronicle-Telegram newspaper, he said that he had met with his son at the Lorraine County Jail and that he had forgiven him for what he had done, stating, I do have a lot of forgiveness in my heart now, thanks to God. He said that for around two weeks after he awoke from his coma, he felt anger toward his son, but said that through the prayer of God, he had forgiven Daniel. He further stated that Daniel had recommitted his life to Christianity and spent his days behind bars writing letters to his family. Before the year came to an end, Daniel appeared in court via video link from jail where he pleaded not guilty to aggravated murder and attempted aggravated murder. Shortly thereafter, prosecutors would file court documents which objected to family visits for Daniel. Daniel had asked for the judge to reduce his bond and asked to be allowed contact visits with his family, but prosecutor Tony Sillo strongly opposed those requests, writing, The defendant sought a 9mm firearm locked in his father's gun safe. He then entered the living room and told his parents to shut their eyes because he had a surprise for them. At that point, he shot his father one time on the left side of his head and his mother three times, killing her. 
Prosecutors said they had a strong case against Daniel, adding that in large part he had confessed to what he had done. Defense attorney Kersey said that he hoped the court would at least allow Daniel's bond to be reduced so that he would have to pay 10% of his $1 million bond to be released from jail. They also wanted the judge to grant Mark minister status at the Lorraine County Jail. Minister status would allow Mark to visit Daniel in jail and claim privileged talks with him. Prosecutor Sillo also strongly opposed this, stating that the court would be forced to determine whether the communications between Mark and Daniel would be from a minister standpoint or a father standpoint. After all, Mark would be a key witness during the trial. And listeners, we'll be right back. Hey listeners, have you ever wanted to delve into the social or psychological causes behind true crime? Then you might like our podcast, Women in Crime. Each episode, you'll hear a new female-focused case or topic deconstructed by experts. It's where true crime meets criminology. I'm Megan Sachs. I'm Amy Sloshberg. And we're both criminologists who spent our entire careers studying and teaching about crime. We'll cover cases involving females as criminals and as victims, but often these are one and the same. We also have conversations with subjects of well-known cases like Amanda Knox, Denise Huskins, and Lorena Bobbitt. You'll hear the stories of these women paired with the science that tells you where it all began. Crime is different for women. Listen and learn why on Women in Crime. You can listen to Women in Crime now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Women, A-N-D, Crime. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day. And for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry, with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ultimately, the judge would rule that Mark could be granted minister status and visit his son in jail. While such conversations would typically be kept private, the conversations between Mark and Daniel would become part of the upcoming murder trial. Mark would have to abide by rules and regulations which would be established by the county sheriff regarding clergy visits. These clergy visits are a lot more lenient than regular visits with inmates. Members of the clergy who are cleared to visit are able to visit an unlimited number of times, as opposed to one visit per week. The murder case went to trial in December of the following year. It was decided it would be a bench trial, as opposed to a jury trial, which meant that a single judge would determine Daniel's fate. There had been very little information regarding the case or a potential motivation, but during opening statements, the prosecution said they believed Daniel had murdered his parents because he was angry that Mark had not allowed him to play the Xbox game Halo. They revealed that before the shooting, Daniel had snuck out of the family home from his bedroom window to purchase the game. Mark and Susan had caught him as he tried to sneak back inside the house with the game, and they took it from him. Mark placed the Xbox game in a lockbox where he also kept his handgun. Around a month later, Daniel took the game and the gun out of the lockbox. They suggested that Daniel had attempted to set up the scene as a murder-suicide, then fled the home with the video game. 
Daniel's defense team said that Daniel had been under intense stress because of a snowboarding accident, which had resulted in a severe staph infection. It had left Daniel with such severe spinal damage that even the slightest injury could leave him paralyzed. They said that he was stuck at home for an entire year with nothing to do other than watch television and play video games. He said it was during this time that Daniel had become obsessed with Halo and would go to his friend's home and play the game for hours on end. However, his parents forbade him from purchasing the game because they felt it was too violent and sexually explicit. The first witness to testify was Mark. He wiped a tear from his eyes as he remembered how, on the fateful evening, Daniel had entered the living room and said, Would you guys close your eyes? I have a surprise for you. Mark testified that he was expecting a pleasant surprise, but moments later, a loud shot rang out and his head went numb. He had just been shot in the head. After shooting him and then shooting and killing Susan, Daniel had shoved the gun in Mark's hand and said, Hey, Dad, here's your gun. Take it. Mark broke down in tears on the witness stand as he recalled how he heard his daughter arrive at the home and heard Daniel telling them that they couldn't come in. He said all he could do was make a guttural cry for help. Mark told the courtroom how, when he visited his son in jail, he apologized for what he had done, allegedly stating, Dad, I'm so sorry for what I did to Mom, to you, and to the family. I'm so glad you are alive. Mark said that Daniel had told him that he could hardly live with the guilt of what he had done, and he would just cry all the time. He said that Daniel and Susan had a very close relationship, stating, He was always her little boy. Heidi and Andrew testified that when they arrived at the family home, Daniel tried to stop them from coming inside, telling them that, quote, Mom and Dad had a big argument. They said they heard a moan coming from inside the home and pushed their way past Daniel and found Mark and Susan. Mark, through his shattered jaw, managed to say that his son had shot them both while Daniel tried to blame Mark, claiming his father had shot his mother and then himself. Heidi explained how she immediately called 911 before realizing that Daniel had picked up the 9mm. However, Andrew demanded that he give the gun to him, and Daniel did so without resistance. Daniel then ran out of the house, fleeing in the family van. He was arrested shortly thereafter, and the Halo game was sitting on the front seat. Heidi testified that the family had forgiven Daniel for what he had done and said they wanted him to come home because they couldn't heal until they were all together. The defense would call four other witnesses, and they attempted to put forth the theory that Daniel's obsession with video games may have led to the murder. They called a friend of Daniel's, 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson. It was revealed that Daniel had temporarily lived with Jonathan and his family when Mark had kicked him out of the house in the weeks before the shooting. Mark and Daniel had an argument over Halo, and Mark told him to leave the house if he could not give up his video game addiction. Defense attorney Kersey asked Jonathan, Out of a 24-hour day, how long would you play? And he replied, Maybe 16, 18 hours? He said that Daniel was obsessed with video games and that he had never shown any anger or said any bad comments toward his parents in the past. Daniel's sister, Holly, would give similar testimony to Daniel's teenage friend. She said that he would play Xbox nonstop 
and would only take a break once in a while to get something to eat. Daniel's grandfather, Michael, he testified that Daniel had shown remorse for his actions. His exact words to me was, Grandpa, I'm sorry, I killed my mom, and... Michael became so overcome with emotion that he couldn't finish the sentence. During the trial, juvenile psychologist Stephen Niehaus presented a report from his interactions with Daniel. He said that Daniel had told him he had planned the murder of his parents for a week and had told him, Now that I was 16, I wanted to make my own decisions, not live by their rules. During closing arguments, defense attorney Kersey did not contest that Daniel had shot and killed his mother and shot his father. He described him as a typical 16-year-old boy who just popped and suggested that he should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. He argued that Daniel's video game addiction made him less responsible and said that the murders had not been planned. Instead, he suggested that Daniel had gone to the lockbox to find the Halo game and then killed his parents in a spur-of-the-moment crime when he noticed the gun sitting next to the game. Countering this, Prosecutor Sillo described Daniel as a cold and calculating killer who plotted the murder of his parents to make it appear as if it were a murder-suicide. He reminded the court that the psychologist, who was hired by the defense, testified that Daniel had told him he had planned the murders for around a week which completely countered the closing statements of the defense, who claimed it was a spur-of-the-moment crime. He stated, He built the plan around the arrival of his sister and her husband at 9 p.m. They were coming to the house to watch the Indians game. He had planned for them to find the bodies. But then Heidi showed up two hours early. She interfered with the plan. Following closing arguments, Judge James Berg said that he would announce his verdict in January. On the 11th of January, everyone returned to the courtroom for the verdict to be read. Judge Berg found Daniel Petrick guilty of aggravated murder and attempted aggravated murder. He said that while Daniel may have been addicted to video games, the evidence in the case showed that he had planned the murder. He explained his verdict and said that there were merits to Daniel's defense claims but said that the law required more to establish the defense. He said, I firmly believe that Daniel Petrick had no idea at the time he hatched this plot that if he killed his parents, they would be dead forever. I think that is the state of mind that this young man was in at the time of these events, that death would not be permanent. He said he considered that Daniel may have believed that, much like the characters in Halo. As the verdict was read out, Daniel showed no emotion. Mark, who was holding back tears, said, I love you, Danny, as Daniel was let out of the courtroom. With the guilty verdict, Daniel was now facing a maximum possible sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. In June, Daniel was back in court to be sentenced for his crimes. Mark pleaded with the judge to be lenient on his son, stating that he regretted what he had done and reminded him often that he's glad he survived. He said that a sentence short of life without parole would give his son a second chance to make up for what he had done. The prosecution disputed that Daniel showed remorse for his actions and asked the judge to impose the maximum sentence of life in prison. Prosecutor Sillo said that Daniel had already received a break because he was under 18 years old when the murder took place, and therefore ineligible for the death penalty.
Ultimately, Daniel was sentenced to 23 years to life in prison. As the verdict was read, he shook his head slightly, snuffled, and then held back tears. He sat back down without saying a word. In 2011, Mark publicly spoke about the actions of his son. He said that after Daniel's snowboarding accident, he was bored in the house, so his parents allowed him to buy an Xbox to play video games with his friends. He said that at first, Daniel only played sports games, but then he started to play Halo 3. Mark explained that when he saw the game and saw how violent and gory it was, he took it away. He said to Fox News, My son Danny was angry with us. He said that when he first learned his wife had died when he awoke from his coma, he first of all felt anger toward his son, telling Fox, I was so angry I wanted to kill him, and I told God that. He said that he planned on never seeing his son again, but God had different plans for him. Now, his mission is to try to get violent video games away from children, and stated that violent video games put weapons in the hands of children and taught them to murder and taught them that killing is okay. The actions of Daniel led to much debate regarding video games and violence. It reignited the old rap music makes kids violent debate from the 1990s. Many people claim that video games can cause juveniles to commit heinous acts of violence. According to Massachusetts Institute of Technology professor Henry Jenkins, who studied the phenomenon, this is a myth. He wrote that no research has found that video games are a primary factor or that violent video games could turn an otherwise normal person into a killer. Professor Andrew Przybylski, director of research at the Oxford Internet Institute, also conducted a study and found no relationship between violent video games and aggressive behavior in teens. He stated, The idea that violent video games drive real-world aggression is a popular one, but it hasn't tested very well over time. A better argument might be whether video games, regardless of whether they're violent or not, are a legitimate form of addiction. In 2013, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders identified gaming addiction as a disorder. It noted that gaming must cause significant impairment or distress in several aspects of a person's life. Two years after he was sentenced, Daniel appealed his conviction, citing a number of reasons, one of which was a failure to suppress evidence. Before his trial, defense Kersey had submitted a motion to suppress evidence and stated that because Daniel was only 16 years old when he was interrogated, he did not understand what it meant to waive his Miranda rights. He also stated that investigators continued to question Daniel even after he told them that he didn't want to discuss the crimes any longer. In Daniel's appeal, he wrote that defense Kersey did not properly convey to him that he could or should file a timely appeal. He said that defense attorney Kersey had told him that the legislation of diminished capacity in Ohio was under review and would very likely be changed within the next year or so. He allegedly told him that when the legislation was changed, Daniel would be able to go back to court and would very likely receive a more lenient sentence. Daniel said that after learning this, he had been studying the effects that violent video games had on juveniles and had hoped his studies would help him if he were ever granted a new trial. However, 
Daniel was then informed by Gregory Dew, a legal clerk at Trouble Correctional Institution, that any change in legislation would only apply to him if they are held as retroactive, and that Daniel would have to appeal if he wanted his case reviewed. Daniel's appeal was denied, and he remains incarcerated at the Trumbull Correctional Institution. Violent video games did not kill Susan Petrick. Daniel Petrick killed Susan Petrick. There is no knowing that if Daniel's parents had taken away his car or banned him from seeing his friends, he would not have responded in a similar way, lashing out with extreme violence. For people to blame video games or blame music or blame television for someone's actions is misguided, and it faults the symptoms as opposed to the issue. Daniel's family, including his father, sisters, and grandparents, have all forgiven him for his actions that day, and they continue to visit him regularly in prison. They cling on to the hope that one day he will be free. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.